Welcome to episode 21 of the Clean Sport Collective Podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung. I'll be joined today by co-host Shanna Burnett as we interview Amelia Boone. Many of you should know Amelia's name as she is a full-time lawyer, part-time obstacle course racing badass, and also someone who has recently been very public about her recovery from an eating disorder. As we talk to Amelia, we get her perspective and story on her rise in the world of obstacle course racing, where she went from trying it out to becoming a world champion in just over a year's time and went on to become a four-time world champion in OCR. We also get her perspective on the clean sport culture and the testing protocols or lack thereof in that world of OCR, and then, of course, get her latest perspective on recovering from an eating disorder and how that has been going for her since she became public about that process for her. I would encourage you also to check out her original blog, which I'll link in the show notes about that process. It's titled The Recovery I Needed. And she also spent two hours on the Rich Roll podcast going in very much depth on that process for her and what it's been like during her recovery. So we check those things out after listening to this episode. And then towards the end, we get her interesting perspective on actually the shoe, the great shoe debate and the Nike Vaporfly and who she believes is the real Nike MVP in this whole discussion about shoes and how they should be regulated. One programming note before we jump in is that this interview was recorded in late October, the week of the New York City Marathon, as Amelia was in town for some events leading up to the race. And so this interview lacks some of the context that was created by Mary Kane coming forward with her story on the topic of eating and weight and body image. So keep that in mind as we listen. So let's jump in and talk to Amelia. Welcome, Amelia Boone, to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Nice and warmed up. Yes, here, exactly. Here we are just after a, a, a ultra event where you were doing a mile high run club workout here in New York. Exactly. The only time they actually enjoy running on a treadmill, I'll say. Yeah, it was a good, good time. So I want to go back and we'll kind of get through your history a little bit. But talk about, as we jump in, your origin as an athlete, mm-hmm. you know, the very beginnings of what drew you to sport? Yeah. I mean, I grew up playing team sports when I was young. Um, just that kid that was kind of pretty good at everything, but never like really superstar. Um, but I, you know, I played played a bunch of different things, but um, kind of got away from it. Um, didn't compete in really much in high school or in college. Um, and then somehow, as as an inter- first year associate at a very large law firm, I had a um, I had a coworker come into my office like, "Hey, we're forming a team. Run this thing called a Tough Mudder. You should do it." And I was like, "I've never run ten miles before in my life, um, but sure, why not?" And let's go get shocked by live electrical wires. <laughs> and um, so tried like trained really hard for it. it was like, "I'm going to be able to do a pull up before this race." And and um, went out, ran my first Tough Mudder, failed miserably at all these obstacles, um, but then walked away and was like, that was really fun. And I'm really bad at it. But now I kind of have a mission to get to be good um, and um, kind of found a purpose. And what, was decided, the, what were you the worst at starting out? 
Uh, I definitely. So here's the thing. People, you take for granted that you should be able to do things like monkey bars because <laughs> because like you grew up when you were little doing them all the time. But if you're an adult and you've never like you're just not used to supporting your body weight like that. Right. And it grated at me that I could not get across monkey bars. Um, and so that was like the thing that was like, okay, I'm like, you need to do this. Um, but I was really bad at it and anything kind of like grip strength hanging, I have really long arms. And so it was just kind of like awkward for me for a lot of things. Can I say that makes me feel so good because <laughs> when I do a Spartan race every year, I think I had to do 150 burpees yeah. last time. Cause I'm like, I cannot do monkey bars. So to know that you couldn't, it's very inspiring now. No, no, absolutely. I definitely could not. Um, I couldn't climb a rope, just all the little things that that you thought you should be able to do as like a functional person. Um, and it really graded at me. <laughs> Law school didn't prepare you for that. Definitely not. No. <laughs> no. So when was that first race? Uh, that was 2011. Yeah. Okay. But you progressed pretty quickly, right? Because didn't you win a world championship in 2011 <laughs> as well? Uh, 2012. 2012. It, it took okay. me a year. So it took you one year to go from having trouble even crossing the monkey bars yeah. to winning world titles. How did that happen? I would like to be honest and caveat that if this was the ground floor of the sport. And so there's the cynical part of me that's like, well, there weren't that many people running it at the time, but I will give myself a little bit more credit um, and say that, you know, I think I just, I found something I was so passionate about um, and really found that purpose. And so I, I, had been resisting like joining CrossFit and things like that because I wasn't quite sure about the entire ethos of it, but it really helped me with my upper body strength. And then I just, I, I enjoyed that challenge. Um, and I think for me, the first, like the world championship was a, is a, it, that was a world's toughest mutter, which is a 24 hour race. And what I really understood through that is that I'm really, really good at enduring miserable and like painful situations for very long periods of time when other people will just quit. Um, and so that was kind of like where I found, I was like, I, I'm like, oh, I have this like mental grit. That's like, I'm just not going to quit and I'm going to do these things and it's going to suck and everyone else is going to quit, but I'm not going to. Um, and that kind of carried me through a lot of it. Um, and I think that's a lot of really, I mean, obstacle racing, there's a lot of skill, but there's also a lot of dealing with really unpleasant things. <laughs> you talked about purpose. What did it set off for you in that respect? I think that I had, I'd always been a high, been a high achiever in my entire life. And so I, kind of did everything that I thought I was supposed to do. Um, you know, in high school, I was at the top of my class and I got into like the best college. And then in college, I was the graduated summa cum laude so I could get into the best law school. And in law school, you know, I like did everything well to get into like the top law firm in the world. And then I got to the law firm and I was just like, okay, what's next? And clearly there is like the partnership track and things like that, but it didn't, I wasn't finding myself pulled to that. And so I think what I found was kind of just this different outlet and this different purpose. Um, and it was a strange kind of compliment to sitting all day, being an attorney and using my brain and then being able to like go run and play in the mud and kind of like feel free in nature. Um, so I kind of switched like in a new purpose, supposedly. How did you juggle doing both of that? I mean, they're both like, it takes so much time. Yeah, I, I mean, 
I always say that I have this thing that if you want something done, you give it to a busy person, you know? Um, And I actually find that when times when I am busier, I'm way more efficient at what I do. Um, And so for me, it was like, okay, well, I know I need to be at work by, you know, 7.38 in the morning while I'm going to get up and train beforehand. I know nobody's going to be looking for me at that time. Um, especially in the law firm world, because they tend to rise later. Um, And I actually, I liked the challenge of trying to fit it all in. So in the early days, like back when I was working in a firm in Chicago, my, I worked on like the 32nd floor. So I used to carry a backpack full of bricks and walk up to, you know, my office. And I was like finding these ways to fit things in. Um, And I don't, I, part of that. So the multitasking was part of what drew me to it what did training look like besides climbing stairs with, brick, <laughs> with bricks in your right. backpack um so i was doing with obstacle racing i was doing a fair amount of crossfit at the time um for a lot of grip strength um and i actually wasn't running that much because i was living in chicago and i um never really been a fan of running on roads um and they have the beautiful lakefront path it's 18 miles long but that's pretty much all you got um and so it was it was mainly a lot of kind of like stairs and cross training and a little bit of running um it wasn't until i moved to california and i was like oh these beautiful things called trails (laughs) that i really discovered how much i love to run um it was almost like the obstacle racing i loved it so much because i could run up and down mountains um and i didn't really have that where i was living at the time (laughs) so you progressed pretty quickly. One year mm-hmm. you said to world champion, what was that second race like if the first one you couldn't complete the monkey bars? How did, <laughs> how, how quickly did you rise? <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure that. So what happened is I did that first race and then immediately I get the email that's like sign up for world's toughest mutter. It's a 24 hour obstacle race in December in New Jersey. And I was like, sure sounds great zero business being there you know like i said i would run 10 miles in my life but i or it at one time um and so i think that first time that I did that, it was it was still pretty rough there were some obstacle failures but as this is what i tell people and people who are runners who are very hesitant to get into obstacle racing because of that aspect you learn really quickly like it takes it's like this you're gonna fail miserably but just a little bit of time and like you can overcome like it's a skill that comes pretty quickly um and um so it it wasn't that bad to be honest um though the obstacles have gotten progressively harder in the past few years so it it might be more of a learning curve but yeah quickly for you at least (laughs) i don't know if it would be so quick for me i'm I'm frankly personally terrified (laughs) but but you progress from there you win ultimately four world championships including one spartan three tough Mm mudder races where did it go from that first championship? Where did it go? Um, well, it's interesting because I never really got into it intending to to end up a world champion. And I, and I did it. So it kind of took a lot of life of its own. And I remember getting my first sponsorship offer and thinking like, what am I, what am I doing here? You know, like, where am I going with this? Because it was always for me was an act of love it was a hobby it was actually a stress relief from work so i wanted to try and keep that aspect to it but i think it's hard when you start to win and you end up having a target on your back and just being a very high achiever and type a type of person 
I started to feel that pressure and I started to think, I started to be thinking like, what happens when I don't win anymore? What happens if I don't win? Like, will people still respect me? Like, will I still have fun? And then I started to question, am I only having fun with this because I'm winning? Like, can I still have fun with it if I'm not winning? And so I started really actually just getting in my head a lot. And I remember by the time I got to 2015 um, and it was like, it was like the Spartan Race World Championship. And then I ended up winning World's Toughest Mudder that year. And I was ready to just walk away because I was just so, when I would cross the finish line, it wasn't like a woohoo, I won. It was like, a, oh, thank God I didn't lose. And um, so my relationship with sport just got very, very like far away from where I intended it to be. Away from the purpose. Away, yeah, away from where it originally started out, you know, because I never started out to like make a living in it, I guess, you know. What were the keys for you in competing at such a high level? Was it about the mindset, that grit that you talked about, or were there elements of training that you would say, this is where I got my edge? You know, I'm not quite sure. I think that a lot of it was the mindset. Um, the thing with obstacle racing at the time is most of us, we had no idea how to train for it. I mean, there weren't. Now you see things like obstacle gems and you see camp set up and boot camps and there are coaches. Back when I started, it was all of us just kind of like fumbling to figure out like how you train for something like that. Um, and uh, so I think I just I found this mix of like upper body strength and then the running and then the speed and it and it just kind of came together and that was the thing about obstacle racing and still maintain is that you have to it's kind of like a jack of all trades type of sport because you can't be singularly good at one thing like you need to be pretty good and pretty proficient at a lot of different things which was kind of always my style as an athlete when I was very young jack of all trades Master of none. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) It's kind of like how I live in my life in general. (laughs) Uh, I'd say you got to be a master there too. So then when did the ultra running enter the picture? When did that become an interest? That became an interest when I I realized what I loved about obstacle racing was running up and down the mountains. And I actually didn't realize that there were races that you could do that without the obstacles. (laughs) I had never really kind of heard a trail running or or mountain running um and then i moved out to california um to work at apple and i kind of got i just fell in love with the trails and it was something that was different for me um and i've kind of always figured i've learned that i thrive on the pursuit of mastery and a part of me had felt like i had quote unquote mastered obstacle racing and so i wanted something else um and I guess it seems weird. Part of me was like, oh, well, ultra would be easy because I'm just taking away everything else and just running. That's got to be easy, right? <laughs> no, you know, <laughs> it's just a, it's a it's a different skill set. Um, and so that's kind of where it came in was kind of just a, a shift. Um, they don't have trail races in Chicago. <laughs> I mean, I, I think they do. I just was never they do have some yeah. um, and up in Wisconsin and whatnot. They're just not as proud in California. You know, you can you can literally run a trail race every single weekend if you want to. So. So recently you've been very public about a lot going on in your life. You're more than just an OCR champion or a trail racer. You're also recovering from an eating disorder and you've been very public about that. We'll save all of those details for other podcasts as Rich Roll has done a good job interviewing you as well as Mm -hmm. others talking about your journey there. 
it's been in some ways brave to come out, I'm sure, for you. I, I was actually at a talk last night with Brene Brown and she oh, yeah. said she said something that really struck me, which is that people don't realize that you can be brave and scared in the same moment. Mm-hmm. And so I would imagine when you put that blog out talking about your journey there, there that was one of those brave and scared mm-hmm. moments. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it's funny because I read a lot of Brene Brown, um, like leading up to this and, and understanding the power of vulnerability. Um, it was is definitely one of those things that for me, I was scared of putting that out there because I told myself that you can't unring that bell, um, that you throw something like that out in the public and you don't know how people are going to react. And I can't take that back, you know, when you have something that's private. Um, and but it was something that I just I never questioned wanting to talk about it because for so many years and I remember doing podcasts even back in, you know, like 2013, 2014, 2015. And people would ask me about like, well, how do you fuel? How do you eat for races and things? And I never I always wanted to go out. I just I never wanted to talk about it. I was like, I would make a joke and try and change the subject because there was in I knew that. I wasn't taking care of myself how I should be, but like, and I, and I felt like ashamed of that. Um, and for me being able to share this and to talk about it was kind of this, this coming to terms with that, you know, like we all have things in our closet that we're all dealing with. Um, and this was kind of me being my true self. Um, and it finally kind of just aligned me there. And so as much as I was scared I definitely like I I never questioned whether or not I should talk about it. What prompted you to want to share? I think a lot of people I I think well there are a number of reasons. One of the things is that I look at people such as Ritual for example who, you know, talked about their I I would look at what they would talk about in their struggles and be able to and understand that they helped me so much in deciding to even like go back into treatment and to seek recovery because I'm like, they've done it, you know, and they talk about it and they're like, you know, and and they're leading the way. And so for me in the back of my mind, it was almost this like, they've done that for me. Now I can pay it forward to other people. Um, and also realize like, I don't have to have this all figured out, you know, like I don't, I was always waiting to think that I needed to be recovered with an ED, you know, period to be able to where I could talk about these things. And I'm like thinking that, no, like nobody really talks about this when they're in the trenches going through it. And so a part of me wanted to give um, a voice to that. And then selfishly, it's also has been a great form of therapy for me (laughs) to be able to talk about it um, publicly, you know, and to be able to interact with other people who then share back um, and to realize that there's a lot of commonality going on. Were you really nervous to push send? I mean, I could only imagine just like when you have it all written, you're about ready to put it out there and then you put it out there. I mean, it's got it. Was it terrifying? It was. I actually I remember I pressed like publish and then I like just immediately broke down in tears. But it wasn't and it was like just sobbing on my kitchen floor, but not in like a scared way. It was almost just like a release of everything that I'd held on to for so long. You got rid of that backpack full of bricks. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. Recovering, and you went to a 
in a, a treatment mm-hmm. through a treatment process with a facility where you were spending what eight to ten hours a day yeah. in treatment doing that by yourself sort of with the within the anonymity of your own treatment team is one thing but then entering this recovering space in a public way mm-hmm. has to be another thing so how has it changed for you that process being public you know honestly i think if anything it's it's given me i actually feel more confident in my recovery by not going through it alone um because it, and and I know like, you know, I have a great, I have a great circle of friends that have known me forever. And especially like my high school friends who went through, like went through this with me, like when I was hospitalized, when I was 15, 16, you know, so they know me, they know my background, but to be able to, you know, share and connect with such a broad swath of people um, beyond all of that has actually really shored up and given me kind of like a mission and a purpose and it makes me feel stronger in it you know and i think that i had i was worried about um the fact that i'm like okay well if you go public with this if you talk about this like everybody's gonna be looking at you and like picking things apart and are you doing recovery right and blah 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 and there there's elements of that for sure but i think at the same time the other the other portion of me thinks that it almost provides this like strange accountability because I can't hide it. You know, I can't is it is rich roles as himself, you know, like disorder and, you know, thrives in silence. And so and, you know, it thrives um, in keeping quiet. And so I'm kind of like going the opposite of that. So what would you like now, even looking back when you said, you know, at 15 and going through what you've gone through and being able to like share your journey and go public, like, what are you going to tell? What would you tell like young Amelia at 15? Yeah, I think I, I, what I would tell myself and I would tell this to, you know, like the, the six year old girl too, who was, I was always afraid something was wrong with me because had a lot of fears, a lot of phobias as a kid. I was just different. And I really, really wish that I could go back and be like, you're not broken. Like, there is nothing wrong with you. There's nothing to fix. You know, I thought I was a crazy kid for so long. And I spent many, many years and all throughout my 20s and like, you know, early 30s thinking that like when people found out things about me that they would be like, and she's crazy. We're going to leave her, take off, like, don't want to be a part of this. Um, and I wish I could just see that that's, that's not the case, you know? Um, it's not, it's not yeah. the case. Yeah. <laughs> so it's different for everybody that's struggling with these things. And, you know, I think that's part of what you're trying to do is raise awareness that this can manifest in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you talked about earlier today is that for you, it wasn't about performance. You know, some people, these behaviors, disordered eating or eating disorders are driven by being faster or better or stronger at whatever their sport may be. For you, it wasn't about that. So talk about that piece of it. Yeah. I mean, it's for me, I always knew like there, there is a very common theme in running, which is that the lighter you are, the faster you can go. Um, And I, you know, I didn't compete in high school. I was in cross country or track. And so I thankfully was never in that kind of realm and hearing those things um, at that time. Um, But with the type of running that I do, and especially with OCR, um, 
being lighter doesn't necessarily help you. Um, and especially if I wanted, I knew if I wanted to do 100 milers, if I wanted to run ultras, like we always joked that we called it quote unquote trail cushion because you need more muscle, you need more mass to like withstand that pounding. Um, and so for me, I always knew, I never thought that being lighter would actually help me. And I knew it was hindering. It was almost, it was just that I, couldn't make myself do the things to like without it was just the anxiety around being like oh well this is how much I need to eat to be able to like withstand that and just freaking out about that I listened to a conversation between you Mario Mario Farioli Mm -hmm. and Brad Stolberg who was talking about his own struggles with OCD yeah and he talked about sharing can also sometimes be glamorized or romanticized, but that while it can be really important part of the process, all the other work is really important too. Yeah. So talk about that. What does that look like for you now? What does that ongoing process yeah. look like? Yeah, Brad was actually very instrumental for me when I when I um came out to speak about this because he told me he's like, you're gonna share, you're gonna get this instant response, this dopamine hit of everyone being like thank you. You're so amazing. And this is like, you're great, blah, blah, blah. And then people move on and it fades and like the, you know, people stop talking, but, and you're still, you, and then it fades away, but you still have a problem, you know? So sharing didn't fix it. Um, and so it is something that I very much aware of that, like sharing and talking about it helps, but I still on a daily basis, like have to do the work. And so the hardest part for me, I'm transitioning away from, you know, intensive treatment and back into working and back into athletics was actually really, I realized I needed to set aside, aside time every single day to work on recovery. And people say, well, what does that look like? And for me, that's, it's a bunch of different things, but it's a, a lot of journaling. It's a lot of, um, just as an example, like if I'm eating, if I'm sitting down to dinner and I'm eating a meal and I'm having feelings arise around the food, then I'll sit down and actually journal and be like, okay, well, what are, what am I feeling about this? Why am I anxious about this? Like in those processes. And so that's really what it looks like for me on a day-to-day basis is, is setting aside time from that. Um, and understanding that, you know, like just because I share and talk about it doesn't mean that it's fixed the problem. I would assume that ongoing therapy is also a part. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then yeah. it's also, yes, I do still have a treatment team, a dietitian and therapist and, and whatnot. That, well, thanks for sharing because I know it's it's a topic that's important for so many women and men. Yeah. And as someone who personally has struggled with bouts of disordered eating, I don't think I've ever had an eating disorder, but I've had bouts of disordered eating. It's mm-hmm. It's just good to hear these perspectives. So yeah. thank you for sharing. Mm-hmm. As we switch switch gears to talking a little bit about clean sport, mm-hmm. the, the, the purpose of our podcast, yeah. I wanted to first just talk about for you, the evolution of the obstacle course racing world, because yeah. you were in it very early on. It's obviously very different now. Mm-hmm. And it seems like there's a lot of athletes flocking to that world to compete at very high levels. What has that been like? What has the evolution yeah. been like as you've been someone in, on the inside? It's been really cool to see. I always say that it, people ask, like, what is, what is a legacy that you would like to leave? And I think for me, being a, like a pioneer of obstacle racing, especially for women getting in obstacle racing, is huge. Because I think the first 
race that I did, there were the first world championship I did, there were like 1100 people and there were 90 of us were women. Um, and so it's, it's been really, and now the numbers are about 50, 50. So that's been really cool to see. Um, but you know, as, and initially like there was no money involved at all, like when we were racing. Um, and now you see the Spartan race world championships this year, the winners 20,000 for, you know, first place. Um, and which in the road marathoning world and things like that is, is small potatoes, but compared to ultra running trail running, there's a lot of money involved. Um, and so a lot of athletes like are like, you can make a decent living off of it now. Um, and I think with that, you know, comes clearly as we were talking about, um, clean sport and whatnot, there, there comes a lot of issues that people are aware of that you know maybe testing should get involved so they started testing a few years ago um but there's a lot of work that still needs to be done there so what's the ethos like though yeah in not just in terms of clean sport but just in general i would assume early on it was a little bit more casual laissez fair and yeah competitive but at the same time maybe a little bit less intense is it that much more intense now or do you see that have you seen that that change at all? I think, especially obstacle racing in the very beginning was very much the wild, wild west. And that in terms of, so Spartan Race initially, there were no course maps. Um, you didn't know what the obstacles were ahead of time. They told you generally that the length was going to be about like eight to 10 miles. Sometimes it would end up like 15. <laughs> um, I mean, and that's what, that's what drew me and a lot of people to it is that it was such the unknown. You had no idea what you were going out there for. Now they have, Spartan has made a big push to make obstacle racing an Olympic sport. And with that, you need a standardization because they're not just going to let, you know, things in that have, have no standards. And so standardizing distances people you have course maps now um you know you're able to see everything it's it has become a legitimate sport um for me i've struggled because i understand the need for that um if they if you do want to make it into the olympics but it it takes away it takes away why i got into it um and i also it also actually makes it a very much more kind of like pressure cooker situation for for athletes because it's no longer kind of like going out and exploring the unknown now it's you know like you have professional athletes who are out there to compete and win and you know make a living yeah i was talking to ian adamson about it who i guess somehow got involved with the governance of the sport yeah. to help push for that that olympic opportunity for the sport and I've told people about that conversation and they, a lot of people roll their eyes. They think, oh, that's, that's not a real, that's not a real <laughs> yeah. sport. It's right. just, that's rolling around in the mud. And it is, it's, it's a real deal. <laughs> so how would you respond to somebody who's skeptical that this could be an Olympic level sport? You know, it's like, people will say that and I get it. Cause there are a lot of gimmicky aspects, um, to, to obstacle racing, a lot of which they've done away from with, you know, like, Spartan Race used to have gladiators at the end, people that would hit you with massive sticks, and they, they got away from that, mainly for liability reasons. <laughs> right. There were a lot of people that got clocked pretty badly, you know. Um, Tough Mudder still has the electric obstacles, um, but they've backed away from that as well. Because So a lot of the gimmicky stuff has started to go away um, to make it more of you know a legitimate sport. But it's hard. You out there and people are like, oh, it's not that hard. I'm like, you go run a Spartan race hard. Like, hard. 
You are redlining the yeah. entire. It is the most uncomfortable experience of my life. I'm like, I like to go out and run, you know, 100 miles in the mountains and I can like trot around and then you go run like an eight mile Spartan race and you just want to die at the end. <laughs> so <laughs> for n- people who have not tried it, like then those are most of the people saying like, yeah, it's not a real sport. <laughs> I'm going to take your word for it because I'm one of those <laughs> right. that, ha- that hasn't tried it, but only because I respect it we'll so much. We'll get you out there, Chris. <laughs> You're right. I do 150 burpees, but it's so much. <laughs> uh, that, that part's just as scary to me, Shanna. Oh yeah. And make sure you do one at <laughs> altitude too so that you're doing burpees at like ten thousand feet up in Breckenridge or something you perfect. hate yourself perfect <laughs> yeah. that's exactly what i need yeah <laughs> so what about so now what about the clean sports side of it right has, was there has there ever been a shift where you've said you know hey i would never even think about in this that that in this world to suddenly now you got to worry about it you know it's funny i i guess i like maybe I've tried to be ignorant in ways, um, but I think that as money has gotten involved in it and that, and that's my biggest, my biggest thing with that, there needs to be more testing in OCR because they do test um, Spartan tests at the world championship. And then they also, te- they're technically under WADA. Um, they test at the world championship. They test at a few other races, um, North American championships. And in their waiver, they reserve the right to test you know, for any race in practice that never happens. Um, it is just in competition testing. Um, but with the amount of money that's involved now, I'm really thinking like there, there needs to be more. I understand testing is expensive. You know, I get it. I, I, I've kind of seen like, you know, how much that costs on their end. But for me, if you want to be a legitimate sport, you need to make sure that your competitors are clean too. Um, so there have been murmurs and rumbling like people always kind of like like rumble about like, oh, well, so and so. But I've never like seen anything concrete about, you know, like I, I sorry. What I'm trying to say is that like I am skeptical. I'm sure that there are people in in the sport who are doing things that are not above, you know, that are not compliant with WADA. Um, I just think that now there's like your your chances of being caught are so small that that it's almost like that needs to be what's ramped up is that there needs to be an actual real threat of of getting caught for that you know in 2016 i was having a conversation with a masters a competitive masters ocr racer yeah and we had the most casual conversation about how he had low testosterone and was on synthetic testosterone and casual in that he didn't seem to think it was a big deal. And because he was being so casual in the moment, I didn't really think it was a big deal. But then I walked away from the conversation thinking, I can't believe that guy just told me (laughs) he's cheating effectively. And, and that was three years ago. Yeah. And of course, you know, at the master's level, I'm sure there's probably potentially more advantage to be gained. But, but yeah, it's it's happening. Right. Do and and you've talked about the testing side of it just basically being the occasional competition. What about the dialogue? Mm-hmm. You know, are, is are people talking about it? Is is it something that Spartan or Tough Mudder those groups talk about? I mean, not. I don't really hear anything about like talking about, you know, 
it, it has not been a big conversation, I will say. Um, you know, we did have we did have one competitor who was at an independent OCR World Championship who was actually who did fail a drug test for um, DHEA. And he's totally open and willing to talk about that. And I think he like it was a huge mistake on his part. Um, and I think a lot of people didn't even realize that that was a substance they weren't supposed to take. Um, and so um, I think that as the sport progresses, you know, Spartan really needs to talk about it more, um, you know, and to 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 make some more efforts to really make sure that everyone is, you know, on on a even playing field, you know, and I say this and like, I don't, I actually don't have any evidence that anyone is doping, that anyone is doing anything. Like, I don't know, you know, but I just, I know that when you get money in a sport, it's going to attract people who want to cheat. So that's, what's important for me. Yeah. So even like with them wanting to be an Olympic sport, I mean, I, I don't know the answer to this at what level or what, point do you bring you know usada in and now right. you know usada's testing and um they have to get serious on that on that front yeah. for sure but then like what is the culture like i mean like when we had ian Sharman on he was like uh, the culture dictates you know a lot mm-hmm. of just um clean sport even if there isn't testing right like trail running there's yeah. not a lot of testing but i think like as an individual group a lot of ultra runners are like very adamant for a clean sport yeah do you have that same in ocr racing those like just we mm. need to keep it clean like athletes that oh, are very absolutely vocal? yeah i mean i think i think you know i there athletes are vocal about the fact that like it needs to be clean um and and i think it's the same with ultra running as well um but I just, you know, it's so tough. I, I've been always, a, I've always been a fan of track and field. I've always been a fan of, you know, like distance running, marathon running. And I see, you know, people who are the, they have to give their whereabouts at all time to get tested. And I see that and I'm like, that's what we need. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as much as that probably sucks as an athlete, I'm not going to lie to like have to give your whereabouts at all time. Like, and I understand this expensive proposition. But I really, really, I would love for somebody to hand me a cup at like five o'clock in the morning. It's like, you need to pee in this. I'm like, I thank you. I will happily give you my pee, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Most of the clean athletes are happy to do so. (laughs) 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 And and to be honest, the athletes that we've had on that talk about the whereabouts part of it, Allison Felix talked about it. Kara has talked about it. They say it's not that bad, especially now where everything's electronic. You know, you can copy paste where you're going to be yeah. and you can file it that way. And you can, if, you, if something's going to change, you can text it in. It's not that hard, but for them, it's worth it because it it at least gives them a better feeling that the playing field is going to be level. Right. And I think that what people don't understand, and, and I think that in this, this goes to ultra running because people say, well, there's no really money in ultra running. You know, you run a hundred miles, you get a belt buckle. Woohoo, you know, um, and so there's not the incentive to dope. But in my skeptical mind, and maybe this is just me and my my lawyer mind and whatnot is like, but no, there's there's a fair amount of money in sponsorships. There's a fair amount of money in bonuses like podium bonuses, um, bonuses for breaking course records, you know, so maybe even though there's there's not money in like different prize purses like you see in marathon running, like you see in track and field, like 
there's still an incentive there. And so I don't want to be as much as I think that the ultra running community is very much and the OCR community is very much like, you know, we need to keep this clean at the same time. Um, you know, like if a bad actor wants, wants to cheat OCR and ultra running are two places where you can do it and get away with it pretty well. I would think. Yeah, that's why I think even events in general need to step up. Like yeah. when like North Face Endurance Challenge, you know, mm-hmm. put a separate category and anybody that's tested positive, they're not allowed to place. Yeah. I mean, I think like events need to take ownership of this too, you know, and of course that comes with testing. But um, I agree with you. Like any, even if it's not for money, it's going to be, you know, for fame or just to win, right? right. There's always an incentive no matter what. Um, people do a lot for ego as well yeah (laughs) and i appreciate it now like one of my um i run far which you know is kind of the media website for ultra running they and their results now will put if somebody like wins a race or podiums a race and they've had um or they've tested positive in the past they actually put that in the results and Mm -hmm. i think that's so so they'll be like you know so and so won this in 2012 they served a two-year ban for testing positive for x y and z and i just think that type of transparency is awesome testing is one thing though and we know because a lot of eventual cheats use that line frequently which is that i've never tested positive you hear that that's (laughs) a to me that's a telltale sign when when someone leads with that statement yeah when asked about doping so we know that testing isn't the only thing right the approach that that with we've tried to push out put out there with clean sport collective is to also ask people to commit to being clean Mm -hmm. you know to sign pledges to to basically say i'm doing this the right way which you know again they can sign that pledge and then go do something behind the scenes that's not valid but it actually puts the conversation at the forefront versus not really talking about it at all or burying it altogether so what do you think about that you know, what else can be done besides just more testing to try to bring that culture to where it needs to be or stay? Yeah. I mean, it's a tough question because you look at what potentially athletes have to gain by, you know, by by not being clean um, versus, you know, like, because you think about it and if you've, I remember listening to a great podcast um, or the Science of Sport podcast with Ross Tucker and they were talking about like, you know, the risk reward um, of of actually doping and like the reward way, way, way like, you know, out like outweighs the risk and which sucks. Um, so you're trying to figure out like ways that you can bring that more into balance. Um, and I really think that it is just like really kind of like keeping the conversation going like you're doing like clear like you do with this podcast and whatnot. and. And really reiterating to people that like sport is so much better when there isn't that aura of suspicion over everything. Like, and I'm seeing this now, I'm sure you guys see this now, like with the world records falling and whatnot. And now every time a record falls, people are like, but is it clean? (laughs) And it makes me a fan of the sport so awful. Like it really does because like now, instead of just celebrating that somebody just shattered a world record, Instead, the person is being like, well, but was it clean, you know? Um, and so I, I don't know. I think so much is just on the, on the onus of the athletes as well as coaches, as well as like anybody who's, who's 
like talking to youth who are getting into sport now. Um, and also really like we don't know the long term ramifications of of substances that people are using to dope, you know, um, and I just think that as as an athlete who I want to be competing for the rest of my life. Um, you know, you don't know what's going to happen to you in the future with that stuff. And I, what do you think about brands? I always like ask this question because I think it's such a, a pivotal point because, you know, like ultra sponsors, you, you know, um, and new balance sponsors, Emma Coburn or Mm -hmm. list goes on. And if, if anybody got tested positive, that sponsorship would be gone forever. I just feel like there's like there's so much that could be done with that and brand supporting so clean sport and only supporting clean athletes because it is, you know, a sponsorship can be a lot of money and rewriting that co- those contract reforms, you know, so yeah. it's not always about performance and, you know, prize money because like you said, the reward far outweighs the risk. So if you're getting constantly rewarded for bonuses and then you're getting reduced when you're not hitting those the incentive is large so what is your aspect or your thought on brands that's actually a really good point because i know like in in my contract with multiple my sponsors that if you get tested positive you're dropped immediately and i remember actually um there was a triathlete who got popped recently and i got let go from a few of her brands and everyone's like that's awful why would they do that to her and i'm like it's in the contract it's I'm like, I'm sorry if it's an accident, but like, that's the risk that you take, you know? Um, And I think that that's really where there could be a lot of leverage because there aren't going to be lifetime bans, um, you know, for, for an athlete. And, And I actually, now in learning about the science of testing, I understand why lifetime bans aren't like, are not feasible right now. Um, but I think that, sponsors really putting pressure on athletes that like it's you don't get three strikes you know it's it's one and done you know um and i think that that would cause more people to think about it for sure so as a fan on that side of it when you see a result that seems extraordinary Mm -hmm. what do you think are you a skeptic or do you believe are you are you a glass half full person? I I know I would love to be an optimist glass half full type <laughs> person, but I don't know if it's the attorney in me. But yeah, I mean <laughs> i i I want to celebrate. You know, when you see people do extraordinary things, like you really do. And I I truly believe, like you know, I I truly want to be like you know innocent until <laughs> innocent until proven guilty as well. Um, but maybe it's just the culture now that everyone is always questioning um, and that it takes away. It takes away from the sport. Um, but so I, I try, I don't know, I try to strike a balance in that for as a fan. <laughs> but does it affect that? I mean, are you still a fan? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm still a fan. And like, look, at the same time, like somebody breaks a world record and, you know, and you're like, wow, that's awesome like i'll still be and i'm like try and tune out any type of noise (laughs) that it could be obtained otherwise because look what you know i don't want running to go the way of cycling you know and i think that it started to go that way and that and it it kills the sport after a while i totally agree and but even to like your point of just being like open and transparent about your eating disorders i think like a lot of people are like so fearful of running right now like oh my gosh it's gonna be like cycling but i think what cycling did wrong was they push it under the rug oh absolutely 
And I feel that what we're doing with running and like a lot of the fans, we're talking about it. You Mm -hmm. know, we're trying to make it better where if we ignore it, it's just going to be the same and it's never going to get better. Like I feel like cycling is one of the worst. I do want to just switch a little bit because you brought up something earlier um, outside of this podcast that was so um, really intriguing. And when we go to use just your lawyer brain and we had this discussion on this whole shoe technology (laughs) um, and you know, and like some people are like, well, you know, the sponsors aren't stepping up. I'm sorry they they haven't, you know, made the technology like Nike's made it. So it's really their fault. Right. What is your, as a lawyer, right? what is your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, it's funny. So I was, I think I was saying that um, I want to meet the lawyer who wrote the patent for the Nike or for the 4% because, and just shake his or her hand because that was a brilliant patent. Let me tell you. Um, <laughs> Um, that the the real star of the show is that patent attorney. I will <laughs> yes. tell you that um, because yeah, I mean the way that the, I'm not a patent attorney, so um, it's, it's a lot of this is Greek to me. It is a very specialized um, realm. But when people are like, well, other other you know shoe companies can do the same. No, they can't. <laughs> um, they can make carbon fiber plates, yeah, but they can't do it in the exact same curvature because. The brilliant patent attorney made sure that it's not the carbon fiber plate that's helping people. It's how it's curved. And that's the part that's patented. Um, And so even if other shoe companies want to try and replicate that, they can't do it in that same in that same manner. Um, And um, so you're not going when people talk about a level playing field and like, you know, are, you know, are the four percents, the vapor flies, the next percents, whatever they're called now. you know, are they giving an unfair advantage? Well, if you're sponsored by another brand and you can't wear that shoe and the brand that you're with can never like produce that, then I don't know. You know, it's it's clearly a very hot topic for conversation. <laughs> do you still feel confident in, in the brand that you're with? I mean, right. oh, do I personally? Right. Yeah. I mean, does it, or does it feel yeah. like you you're going up there feeling right. like I'm at a disadvantage? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I would be it'd be interesting because I, you know, for anybody who's running with a different brand that doesn't have access to that. Um, I'm look, I'm never going to go off to a world record in, the, in a road marathon. Um, but I could see how as an athlete that sucks because you're like all these people and they say that this is an advantage but I can't I can't wear it but I really like the shoes that I'm wearing you know so it's like I'm what I'm gonna do but my can't company can't make that shoe so yeah it's it's uh I mean I don't know it's 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 crazy I like I like the conversation as as a theoretical thought exercise though (laughs) what's your theoretical solution do you have one oh god um no i don't i mean i i i'm right now more information gathering um to try because i really want to like learn all about it um and then i also feel you know given that i'm not like a road marathoner it's kind of like outside of my expertise but i bet it just intrigues you being an attorney oh absolutely Yes. I mean, I mean, the whole patent aspect definitely, definitely intrigues me and the and what they're doing with um, with that shoe. And I'll be interested to see as we hear about other brands coming out with similar prototypes, um, just if there's any type. Because I, I just I feel like there is so much about the specifics of that plate and how it's curved that any other prototype isn't going to come close to what they've been able to do there fascinating right the real mvp the patent lawyer 
<laughs> I know. Who would have thought? I really, really <laughs> want to find that person and talk to them. So do I. <laughs> so if you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> find hit <us>. me up. <laughs> Perfect. So as we wrap things up here, Amelia, what's next for you? Yeah. If, if fans want to follow along. Yeah. So um, I actually am returning my obstacle racing roots in a few weeks. I'm heading back to World's Toughest Mudder. Um, I don't know how re- I just ran Big's Backyard Ultra the other week. So um, we'll see how recovered I am. Just a um, few miles there. Just a few miles there. <laughs> only 112 yeah. um, is the joke. Um, but yeah. And so that'll be fun for me. I actually haven't been on an obstacle court or race or on a course for a while um and then i don't know 2020 i have a lot of a lot of things that i want to do a lot of races it's just kind of figuring out figuring out how to fit that all in i think that's always the that's always the um the problem (laughs) tbd well thanks so much for joining us amelia we really appreciate the time and the conversation thank you thanks so there you go amelia boone everyone Really, really appreciate her taking the time. I love her positive energy, just really, really infectious. So that was a fun interview. Thanks, Amelia. I did want to give a quick postscript update on her race at the World's Toughest Mudder. Amelia decided to drop out after, man, 12 hours of racing there to to save her body for another day. And she said this on Instagram talking about her race. She said, I won't lie, there's definitely been some second guessing of myself as it was really hard to pull the plug. I know what it takes to win and compete hard in this race and that involves the willingness to risk utter destruction of the body at all costs. I've done it multiple times and it's glorious in its own way, but I knew coming into this that that's not where I am at right now in life and not something I wanted to do this year, though I may once again. So this year was an experiment to see what emotions came up for me with that in mind. I'm in a different place than I was a few years ago. For so many years, I felt like I needed to first prove something to myself and then prove something to others. I don't think I feel that anymore. I don't know where that leaves me, but I'm sitting with it and figuring it out. It's different, but I think it's a good thing. What I do know is I hope everyone knows how much it meant to me to be welcomed back and how proud I am of, of each and every one of you and what you gave out there. I was honored to run among you and inspired by your stories. See you in Dallas next year. I love the direction at Tough Mutter is heading, so you can't get rid of me just yet. So that's Amelia's note after dropping out of the world's toughest mutter after, man, 12 hours of racing. So kudos to Amelia for making it that far and for all of the insights that have come with it. Thanks again to Amelia for opening up. Thanks to all of you as listeners for continuing to follow along on our storytelling for the Clean Sport Collective podcast. Of course, you can check us out at cleansport.org where you can sign the pledge or invite others, including brands, to sign the pledge. And then you can follow the conversation on social media at Clean Sport Co. That's at Clean Sport Co on Twitter or Instagram. So thank you all for following along and chiming in. And beyond that, please keep listening. And we will talk to you in next week's episode.